Welcome to Mom and Doc Talk, a podcast for health-conscious parents where you get the perspective of a mom and a dad who's also a pediatrician and pediatric emergency physician. Instead of Googling your way through parenting and hoping for the best, get trusted guidance and be the empowered, savvy, and decisive parent you know you can be. Sleep easy when you follow advice tested by doctors and tried by moms and dads. Here are your mom and dad hosts, Dr. Christopher Haynes and Azure Sullivan. Hello, and welcome back to Mom and Doc Talk. This is Azure. Hey, guys. This is Dr. Chris. Hope everyone's well. Yeah. Hope, how is everybody? How are you, Dr. Chris? I'm great. Dealing with the heat of Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. Today was like 100 degrees. Uh, I don't think it was quite there. The no, humidity, it was. It humidity, definitely was. humidity was that high. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we're. I think I. I think I heard we're I'm going through a, a two-week heat advisory. Advisory yeah, or it? heat stroke or heat streak or whatever the heck Something they're calling along it. those lines. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, speaking of babies, I'm a big baby when it comes to heat. But yeah, no, we've been getting a lot of questions associated with crying and little little babies. And things that can help them help soothe them, and you know, a couple other related questions. And really wanted to talk today about why do babies cry, basically, or what can we do to assist a crying baby or make them feel better. And Dr. Chris and I really want to talk about some really helpful tips that'll get us started in that uh, great direction of knowing exactly what to do when your baby's crying. Yeah, I would agree 100%. You know, crying for us in the emergency department is something we see all the time. It's typically a middle of the night complaint. It's more common with first time parents. And hopefully we can go through some of the bigger culprits today, talk a little bit about them. But let's start with why do babies cry? And, you know, it's really frustrating. And I'm sure, were you frustrated when your baby cried? Oh, of course. And you can't get them to stop. And I, I will never forget the first time with my younger, my older daughter. She was, I think, six or seven weeks old. And my partner at the time went went out and left me with the baby for the first time. It was my first baby. And she cried incessantly. I couldn't get her to stop. And I'm a pediatrician and a pediatric ER doctor. I'm like, I should be able to do this. No problem. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I ended up getting her bathrobe, wrapping it around me, and that's what helped. So there are lots of tips and tricks that we can help you work through. But why why do babies cry in the first place? It's really their way of communicating to tell you they're in need of something. And, you know, it's a signal to their parents that they need immediate attention. If they didn't have that, you know, they cry for it because they're hungry. They cry because they're upset. They cry because they're in pain. And... We're going to start by really talking about hunger. And what what's your experience with hunger and crying? Azure? Me? Yeah. Personally? <laughs> you yeah. think I cry? You get hangry all the time, just like babies. <laughs> and, and you identified yourself as a baby. Yeah, but I did. <laughs> tell me about your experience with you know, your child and what you went through with hunger. I feel like it's not just waiting until they're crying to notice that they are hungry, they do give you lots of signals, you know, whether they're um, reaching their mouth for, they're sucking on some things or their mouth is reaching for that, you know, that mother's chest kind of thing. Um, There are lots of signs that kind of say, feed me, I'm hungry until they get to the crying phase. So you're talking about hunger cues. Yeah. So there are, those are called hunger cues. Yes. 
And so it's kind of not waiting until you get to that point. Then you do just have that traditional, you know, very needy, hungry child who just wants to eat all the time. And you kind of have to, again, being a a first-time parent, you have to get to know one another. And every baby is different. So getting to know each other in those first few weeks is the hardest phase in any in any sense of the word. But it's definitely something to, hey, I'm going to keep my eye open. How What are the hunger cues and how can I keep this from happening? Or um, focusing on how much you're feeding them and the, and the time frames that you are, like their feeding schedule. And reevaluate that if you feel like they're crying a lot more. Yeah, I would also – hunger cry is a little bit different. And I, you know, I think moms are better at it than dads, but there's a pretty typical hunger cry. I'm sure with your little one, you identified it, you get the I'm upset cry, you get the I'm in pain cry. And typically, and research has shown that that's kind of a, it's a short and low pitched cry. It kind of sounds like a neigh. And really what experts say is this is from the tongue hitting the roof of their mouth in search of milk. So as an experienced parent, you may have heard that before, but as a new parent, it may be something new. And you're right, Azure, it's getting to know that child, getting to understand them. They're trying to communicate. I have parents all the time that come in with crying infants. They are frustrated. They're upset. They're looking for all of these reasons. And unfortunately, there's Dr. Google, as always, and there's thousands of things that you know come up when you search crying for infants. And most of it is pretty simple. There are things that will hurt your baby. But you know, tell me about some of the hunger cues that you remember from your little one. Hunger cues, definitely. You know the well. I've definitely again. I've said the you know if she's close to me, then she's uh, she's searching. She's trying to. We, we call it kind of rooting. They're rooting. yeah. That's the word. I I it was slipped my mind. The rooting, um, and again, there's the the, the lip smacking sucking on their hands, sucking on something that's nearby them. Yeah. And I, I would say we talked about rooting and really you kind of described it, but I want to describe it again. It's turning their head to really look for that bottle or look for that breast. And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is as you go through training, there's a reflex that if you stroke the side of their cheek, they'll begin to suck. Um, it goes away as they get older, but young babies, you can get them to suck by really just taking your finger and running it up and down their cheek from kind of their cheekbone down towards their mouth, they will almost automatically suck. Um, So a really cool trick if you wanna try to get them to suck. The other common reason is being sleepy. Uh, We all know, even, even when we're sleepy, I call it slumpy, you get sleepy grumpy. And you know, what, tell me what your experience is with sleeping and babies and that sleepiness and that crying. Uh, it comes down to, again, them not being on a routine kind of – well, hold on. It could be a couple of things. It could be, you know, trouble falling asleep, being excessively tired. Maybe they've been awake for a long time, uh, you trying to figure out if they're hungry, sleepy, sick, all those wonderful things, and they're just so tired that now they can't fall asleep and they're just overly exhausted, much like, you know, you or I could be. And it's definitely a learned thing. It's not just, oh, you put them down and they're going to go to sleep. They have to be comfortable with their environment. They have to be comfortable, you know, with what they're wearing. Uh, could be the person they're with. As Dr. Chris, you said, it just you just weren't the person that your daughter wanted at the time. And it's all about, you know, the scent could be um, – it really comes down to that sleep schedule, 
getting them on it as soon as possible to teach them this is what sleeping looks like, where it is, how it happens, and the type of environment, whether that's closing the blinds or putting a sound machine on or giving them a bath beforehand, kind of teaching them how to sleep. And it's very odd to say that, but in the womb, they're just kind of on their own schedule doing what they feel like it in a very dark, warm, cozy environment. So you kind of want to replicate it, but also give them structure so they know exactly how to fall asleep, know when to fall asleep, et cetera. Yeah, if I could say it back to you, sleep's a learned skill, you know, just like anything else. And, you know, if you think about babies when they're born, they're learning that circadian rhythm that we have. And as they get older, it becomes more of a problem. You know, we daylight savings and the lights up at 5 a.m. and your children are up when you're trying to sleep till eight o'clock. And I, it's, interesting to work through it. And in addition to that circadian rhythm and learning how to sleep, they also need to learn how to soothe themselves. And that's they're not really capable of that. They're not really capable of sleeping through the night until about four months. They're not capable of self-soothing until they're a little bit older. And that's what parents are for. And things that we can do are swaddling and learning how to swaddle properly. Um, the other things that we can do well is, you know, sound machines, vacuum cleaners, singing lullabies, you know, and you talked about it as you're in that routine, getting them that routine and teaching them what it's like and then putting them in the environment that will get them to sleep. And, and a couple other things I want to mention. It's, you know, if you are super stressed out and you have a lot of this energy that's super built up, they feel that. They feel if you're tense that you're really not in that calming mode and it makes them calm if you are so try to you know do some oohs and ahs breathing exercises if you're like oh my gosh i just hadn't slept in five days i just want them to sleep i'm so anxious you know maybe you've had a couple outbursts remember to take that break because it's necessary they can cut they can feel all that energy and also you know i've heard of people saying well i'll just cut down their daytime sleeping so that they're more tired at night and that is definitely not the answer makes it much worse. And and I would stress you talked about that, you know, four or five days, no sleep, you're coming home. You know, I always joke that once you have a baby, you'll never sleep in ever again. But it's okay to walk away when they're crying. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. If you're feeling stressed, get some help, walk away. Um, you know, it's it certainly you don't want that to impact the baby in any way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we're going through this mental checklist, I should say you, as you're going through this mental checklist, I'd say maybe the next thing is, hey, are they dry? Do they have a dirty diaper? And that's a really big reason why, you know, just discomfort. They don't want to be sitting in it. We don't want to be sitting in it, right? They don't want to be sitting in it any more than we would. So it's definitely something to check initially. I would add that no one, think about it, no one wants to be wet. No one wants to sit in a dirty diaper. And, you know, some of the things that you can do is just really be cognizant of it. There are diapers out there that have wetness indicators on them. And you can feel it. You can kind of sniff it and say, you know what, this is this baby wet. And you'll know pretty quickly. And, you know, if it's due to discomfort from being wet, that'll be an easy way to make that go away relatively quickly. I think the other big thing we we talk about sleeping, we talk about diapering and you know, feeding's a big issue as well. And sometimes, you know, babies can have reflux, they can have burping issues. You know, 
I never had any issues where my children had trouble burping, but I think I did it properly. And we can talk about what the right way and wrong way to burp is and, you know, the positions to feed. But what were your experiences with burping? Oh, well, I had a rule. You know, you, depending on the age and how much your child is consuming, you know, bottle fed, breastfed, whichever the case, you know how much they're eating, um, giving them breaks, making sure that they're not drinking the whole bottle or uh, nursing the entire nursing session without stopping. I know some babies can be very greedy and they don't want to stop or they cry when you pull them away, but it's so necessary. And just like kind of we, the way you and I eat, we, we take breaks, we take sips of water in between our meals and we will burp on our own, but we don't really recognize how much we're doing it on our own until, you know, we actually focus on trying to get a baby to do it. We're like, oh, wow, yeah, um, they do need to do it frequently. Every two, three ounces of eating, give them a moment to break and burp. And I, going back to what I said, I had a rule was, you know, if she didn't burp, then I wasn't really going to feed her anymore. And I really made it apparent that I got that burp. And sometimes I'd work 10 minutes on it, but I didn't want to put more food in her belly coating that air that pocket of air and making it harder for her to burp later on so she was always super easy to put down afterwards or calm afterwards that she didn't have that extra burp i mean there was a couple times she had a couple more left in there but it was really easy to tell that it was shortly after eating or maybe like 20 minutes later that you can definitely tell it was either you know because they had that reflex of going to the bathroom right after eating or it was probably a burp. So I knew it was one of the two things. And again, it's getting into that rhythm of knowing your child's cycle and uh, that routine. Yeah, I, I would add that let's talk about why you burp. All right. Babies are swallowing air. There's lots of reasons they swallow air. It can happen with a pacifier. It can happen from crying. Um, I had an x-ray last night of a child that literally screamed from triage all the way into the room for 20 minutes. And we did an x-ray of the belly. And the stomach was huge, filled with air. And that's the kind of thing that will lead to a burp. It will lead to discomfort. I would also add the other thing that's really important to think about is overfeeding. And we see that a lot. And I would ask parents to step back. And I, I had a baby several weeks ago that was, I think, six or seven weeks old. And the baby was taking seven ounces every two hours around the clock. And if I take seven and I multiply by 12, you're talking 90, 75 to 90 ounces a day. We don't take that much. So, you know, be careful of overfeeding. That will lead to crying as well. It will lead to more burping. It'll lead to vomiting and sometimes diarrhea as well. So I would say, you know, what worked for you with, with burping your child? What, what technique? Positions. You asked me positions. Yeah, and I would say always, I would add one other thing. Make sure one of the things that works is feeding upright as much as possible. When you go flat, um, my opinion and my experience has been that you end up with more issues when you're going flat. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely agree. Definitely a more inclined position for feeding, you know, whether that's nursing or bottle feeding, either one, definitely more inclined so that they, you know, reduce the amount of issues that they have or, you know, air that they're intaking. Um, but also positions that I love the most. Um, sometimes, you know, either my chest was too sore or my stomach hurt or, but I loved placing 
because there's a traditional way of putting your child over your back, right? But then you get I'll that. Describe that. What is then that? You what get, is that for new moms? On. What's that traditional way? The traditional way is like kind of hugging them over your shoulder, putting their face, uh, their chin above kind of the top of your shoulder bone there and with a little bit of a burp rag, but then that spit comes up and it'll go all down your back. And that's why I never really did it that well or that, that much in that way. I loved doing it where I could see everything. I can control it. I loved having kind of like sitting down, putting my one leg up on my other knee, kind of like how a lot of men sit, and then having her over the knee that was propped up and then having my hand kind of on her stomach at the same time. Kind of supporting from the front Supporting the from the front, yeah. And that way I could see everything that was going on and I wasn't stressing my shoulder or my one arm too much because it can get tiring. Like, you know, five minutes of burping doesn't sound like a lot, but it's like tiring. You know, you're doing this at three in the morning. You're tired. So think about positions. Sometimes I've, you know, people are like, oh, why are you doing it that way? It looks uncomfortable to them. They are upright. They are getting the burp out. That's my, my, my interest is getting it out as soon as possible. I don't want them to be super comfortable and fall asleep. I want them to be upright. Or to start to play. Or start to play. I want them to be upright. I want this to get going. We're going to burp. <laughs> But there are a lot of positions out there, some, you know, whether it's just holding them on your knee and holding it with your, you know, supporting their back with one hand and placing the other hand on their stomach or upper chest with a burp cloth over your hand and kind of catching whatever might fall out uh, or spill over. But a lot of options here. Yeah, I would I would add for me, I never really liked the over the shoulder because I was also afraid of getting the vomit all down my back, oh, if, they, all down if, the back. if they spit up. I was more of a put them on one leg, hold them a little, little leaning forward with, you know, I'm left-handed with my left hand and then patting with my right hand if they're on my right leg and keeping them upright. And like you said, you can keep a really close eye on them if there's any choking, if there's hiccups, you can see really what they're doing. You can see their color. And I think it's a really good, you know, thing and a good way to deal with burping. And I think the other thing that's important is that every baby's different. So some babies will burp two, three times. Some babies will be totally comfortable if they're burping after one. Um, I do see parents that have had children and then are going back and doing it again after five, six years, and baby one is different than baby two, and you have to relearn it. So it's getting to know your child, as you talked about earlier, Azure. Yeah, and I've heard other people comment about the pressure that they that you give them while burping. You're afraid of hurting them, you know. Babies are not as fragile as you think. And, you know, a little harder of a tap is not going to hurt them. It's definitely going to assist that air jiggling out of its place a lot better. And I think it's way more beneficial than a teeny tiny little little baby pat. Yeah, I, I would agree 100%. And, you know, one of the things that we also see with burping is we see parents coming in all the time that they think their children have, you know, belly pain. And that can be from air that wasn't burped. And some of the things that you'll see with babies like that is you'll, and I'm sure you've seen this with your own, and I also have parents that will think babies are constipated. And, you know, you talked about that reflex that babies eat. It's called an ileocolic reflex. So they eat and they poop. And over time, that spreads out. So, they're, you know, baby doesn't need to poop every day. And formula-fed babies can go five to seven days without pooping. And there are times where they're absorbing three weeks, three months, six weeks, six months 
where they may absorb anything and not poop for several days because they're they're really getting all the nutrients out of their formula of their breast milk to grow. So I, I would think about it and not be worried. We have kids that come in with parents every day. They come in because they, they think they're constipated and they, you know, they're perfectly fine when we do x-rays and we look and there's no stool there at all. So, you know, think about, you know, could they have a lot of gas? You know, do they have tummy troubles? You know, other things to think about is if they have projectile vomiting, they need to be evaluated. If you think it's just gas, you can lay them on their left side, you can rub their belly, you can bicycle their legs. That will help get the gas out and make things get a little better over time. Yeah, so definitely check multiple ways of how gas can be trapped, a gas bubble, whether that's in their stomach from feeding or just because they can't let it out the other end. Crying. So yeah, just keep them moving, keep them upright, try to any way you can to get that out, really. And um, the next thing I wanted to mention is about teething. And this isn't until like maybe a little later as I get a little older, but it is definitely a big source of crying and discomfort, really. Yeah, it can start around four months and up. Usually it's a little later than that, um, but they will be crying. And other signs of teething that you might see are drooling, really trying to suck on everything and chew on everything. Yeah, they want to they kind of want to get that pain to subside and something to soothe them in that area. You know, whether it's something cold. Cold is a really great something cold is really great for helping them soothe that pain away. Whether it's those teething rings that you put in the freezer or a cold washcloth or if you just do your traditional gum massaging with a clean finger. Yeah, th this I would agree a hundred percent, and this is something that we get questions when we're doing parent coaching all the time about teething and what things you can do. And one of the things I would add is really steer clear of some of the over counter over the counter remedies. Um, some examples of that would be Ambisol, Oragel. Um, these are benzocaine based, and they can lead to lidocaine toxicity, and they are definitely not recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And the reason being is that they can cause numbness to the throat, they can cause choking, they can uh, impact the ability to swallow. And in addition, there are some homeopathic remedies. What homeopathic means is really there's infinitesimally low amount of a chemical that's there. And most people believe that they do not really help. Um, there are examples of this would be teething tablets. And, you know, they say that they will soothe crying baby, teething pains, but keep in mind that the FDA has not recommended these. And you can really just use the natural things that Azure talked about. And I would also add, you can always use Tylenol or Motrin. You can use Motrin over six months of age um, based on weight-based recommendations. Talk to your pediatrician. What worked for you for teething? What was effective? Not you particularly, but your, your children. <laughs> well, uh, depending, you know, on the age, of course, when I was doing my baby led weaning, it was about like the solids, like the avocados and like feeding them foods that kind of while they were eating, I was soothing them as well. You know, like cold avocado really was really helping her um, or like a little bit of those teething crackers that, that really aren't made of anything, but just like kind of a wafery texture, but kind of gave them that sense of eating something, putting something in their mouth that they could consume, but also like it was hard enough to give them that relief or give her that relief, I suppose. And of course, you know, like you said, 
uh, Tylenol Motrin at the proper dosages and just massaging her, comforting her. And it's not going to go away 100%. We have to accept that. If we have pain as adults, like in anything, you know, pain medicine can only do so much or the comfort of our environment can only do so much. But all of those things together really, really make the situation a lot better. So whether it is giving them a teething ring or holding them, rocking them, and just kind of massaging their gums, all of those things together really help. And kind of keeping an eye on like what teeth are coming in so you're aware of like maybe the pain levels because the molars kind of give them a little bit more pain than it does the front two teeth and so on. I would add those are really great tips, and I don't think most people think of they think about you know teething rings and ibuprofen Tylenol, but using cooler foods is a is a great idea. Um, it's actually something that I never used and I never thought of, so I think our listeners can benefit from that. Yeah, if they're older, maybe a cold banana, something your child's able Popsicle. to able to eat, and you know age appropriate, of course, and um, and all the put it in the freezer if they can or. Uh, just to chew on the, the the outside of it rather than just actually consume food. You can put something in the freezer. And they also have teething rings that are not meant to go in the freezer but are made of like a silicone texture or like a uh, – there's a couple other like weird textures that they're made of. But something along those lines, you don't have to – it doesn't have to be cold, but it does definitely help if it is on the colder side. Yeah, agreed 100%. The other thing I want to talk about in this episode is – you know, we have the baby, you know, Christmas comes around, holidays come around, and now you're at a party. You have a new baby, and the baby's getting passed from aunt to uncle to aunt, and kids are around, and the baby's overstimulated. And Do you t- get cranky when you're around a lot of people for too long? I like being around people. Um, sometimes, yeah. I, do you? Not usually, but there are times I'm just, like, not feeling it. Yeah, I, I think it's easy for a baby to become overstimulated quickly. And yeah, they're know, not used to it. No, and I think it, it it ups their, I'll say, use the word adrenaline, where they're getting all this inbound stimulation. And you get home and you go through your routine, the baby's wide awake. And next thing you know, you have a baby that's like got a curdling scream that you can hear two rooms away because they're still in that overstimulation mode. What were the things that helped when when you did that and when you went through that, kind if, of, if you did? Yeah, if I did that, so I was really cautious about what I exposed her to or, you know, other kids that I've taken care of. It was about weaning them out of that, much like, you know, I'm sure a lot of you don't work out right before bed, kind of the same thing, doing it maybe in the morning or in the middle of your day so you have that time to recover from that adrenaline, that upburst in energy and kind of the same thing so if I knew I was at a party and she was being passed around so to speak I would say well there's some there's some calming down time and uh one-on-one time and definitely starting into that again that sleep uh, that sleep preparation that routine that schedule of getting in her jammies massaging her lowering my voice, putting her in a darker room, letting her know it's time to go to sleep, that kind of thing, and kind of chilling her out, really. Just like, okay, we're going to chill out now, and this is how we're going to do it. And I I would add that typically be prepared to lengthen that period of time. It may take longer than the typical routine. And I, I I wouldn't say to anyone to not 
allow your child to be stimulated. Stimulation is good. That's how babies learn, um, certainly within moderation. But, you know, think about that one-on-one wind-down time, maybe lengthen it a little bit. So, I also think that stimulation is not just for people-people contact. It could be, you know, they're hot. They're really cold. You've been I've, – I've seen a couple people, they have like a child toy that plays like a song and they have it right against the baby's ear. Baby's ears are way more sensitive than ours. So that could cause extreme discomfort and overstimulation. And that's something I kind of want to mention about, you know, it's not always just what they're seeing. It could be what they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to this is a baby's way to communicate. And they're not ready. They're not having a conversation with you. It's a new language that they're trying to learn and crying is the first part of it. And it could be just purely about a need for attention. You know, you've gotten busy with dinner and you've put them in the swing and, you know, they don't want to be in the swing. And babies, especially young babies, really need to be attended to relatively quickly. Um, You know, there's always this question, if you pick them up every time, you're going to spoil them. Probably not. And it really also allows them to develop a system where they can learn to be calm and calm down through this agitation, this aggravation, if they get irritated um, for being left alone. They're learning how to soothe themselves, but you also have to soothe them when they're very young. And this will get better as they get older. And it really helps to keep them active in things that you're doing. And this really stimulates those those brain cell stem uh, creation. Uh, not nor- brain stem. Uh, that's, not what I'm, that's what I'm to say. Neurons, yes. The growth of yes, those Dr. neurons. Sullivan. And it's really ha- – just like we talked with our previous guest, even though you, know, you have a four-week-old baby and you think talking about cooking in the kitchen with them is not going to – they don't understand, and so why would you do it? It's not about them understanding. It's about really exposure – and it really helps their brain is processing and growing and they're learning. At I, a, I loved her analogy. She said she's basically creating a tree of neurons. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of setting down those, uh, I guess, creating that road, putting those blocks down for that road, even though they're not ready to walk down it or drive down it, it's being created. So a couple of things that I'd like to do with my kid is I loved, you know, giving them that attention as well, but me not tending to her was while I was cooking dinner, you know, obviously we don't want to leave a baby alone or unattended, but you know, if, even though you can kind of see them from afar, doesn't mean that they feel like they can see you. And so putting them in the kitchen, at least, you know, by an opposing cabinet so that you can cook and talk to them and maybe, you know, dim the lights a little lower if they're supposed to be taking a nap, but kind of letting them know, hey, I'm here and I'm doing things and you're a part of it, but you're still in your own space and you don't need me. Yeah, I think that's perfect. I think that's great advice. I would add one of the one of the frequent things that causes, I would say frequent, but more common is illness. And I think parents sometimes forget, you know, when you're We have kids who come in all the time. They've not gotten ibuprofen. They've not gotten Tylenol. They don't have fevers at the time. They've had fevers where the parents have taken care of it. I would ask all of our listeners to think about how they feel when they're ill, even when they don't have a fever. You feel gross. You know, you have a headache. You're achy. Babies feel the same way. And we've talked about this before. On an average first year of life, they get 10 to 12 viruses. They're going to feel horrible whether they have a fever or they don't have a fever. So really understanding that and thinking about the illnesses. And, you know, I would also say that 
think about that cry. We talked about those different cries. As an ER physician, I hear crying all day long. I, I develop kind of ears in the back of my head and I can hear a cry, you know, three or four rooms down when I know that a child's sick. It's, it's a weak cry. It's an eh, and it's just, it's not right. And do you know what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And it's not even, I think talking about, I always bring up, you know, the, the routine and the schedule for sleeping. At this point, it kind of goes out the door because just like you and I, if we're sick, you know, we're laying in bed more. We might be sleeping more. We might be doing a lot of different things that we're not used to doing during the day. So kind of take that schedule and set it aside for the couple days that they're sick and kind of be like, all right, we're just going to chill. We're going to hang out together. I'm going to cuddle you, give you kisses and not make it their problem. Basically take that away from them and give them that comfort of like, okay, we're not going to be on a strict schedule today where if you want to sleep, you can sleep. I'll be here. I'll hold you, those kinds of things. And that'll really relax them. I would add that there's some red flags to look for as well, especially young babies that are sleeping too long. Um, be really careful. If they're crying and they're really sleepy and you can't wake them up, um, symptoms like fever, projectile vomiting, consistent vomiting, weight loss, um, baby's not alert or they're they're really not consolable. Not eating, not drinking. Yeah. And and for me, you know, we were kind of taught if your baby's yawning, your baby's a yawning baby's a happy baby. One of the things that we dig into very quickly is when was the last bowel movement. That's a marker for a young baby that they're doing okay. When did they pee last? Those are the things to look out for that your baby's becoming really sick. I think the other things that babies will cry for is just general discomfort. And these are the things that we're looking for. You know, is there an eyelash in the eye? Um, did they happen to scratch their eye? Sometimes we'll actually go and stain their eyes with something called fluorescein and look for a scratch. We pick it up every once in a while. And it's something we can easily remedy with some antibiotic drops and follow up with an ophthalmologist and some pain medications. I mean, do they have a hair tourniquet? Are they, did their shoe is put on too tight? Um, and I mentioned, you know, hot and cold, that's part of the discomfort here. If they're too hot, they're too cold, and um, it kind of meshes in with a little bit of overstimulation as well. Yeah, do they do they have a diaper rash? Do they have a diaper rash? Yeah. yeah. You know, lots and lots of reasons. And, you know, one of the things that I'd recommend is, you know, if you have a crying baby, it's that checklist you talked about before. Are they hungry? Are they sleepy? Um, you know, are they just wanting to communicate? Can you console them? Do you think they have an illness? The other thing to do, and we do this, is we do a good physical exam. And we rarely do testing on a baby that's been crying that's now consolable. We'll go through and do a complete physical exam. Did they get hurt? Um, do they have a fracture? Do they have that hair tourniquet you you talked about, which is a, it's a hair that's wrapped around a finger, a toe, a penis? Um, it can be wrapped around a clitoris of a female. So there's lots of places you can have it, and you need to really look closely. Yeah, do they have a bug bite? Exactly. Lots, lots of different things, and really – Use your really use your skills as a parent and get them undressed, roll them over, look all over the place and really kind of look for it. Uh, what could be causing that excess crying? And I think that's a really good transition to colic. Colic. And, everybody loves this one. That's why we left it for last. I, I, it's, I, I don't think it's as common as people think. But, you know, this is what everybody thinks when they think a baby crying. And let's a little talk about the definition. And it's defined by the American Academy of Pediatrics as a condition where an otherwise healthy 
and I stress this, otherwise healthy baby. There's no cause. This is rarely, I won't diagnose this in the emergency department at all, where an infant cries more than three hours a day for more than three days a week for more than three weeks in a row. And these babies, they cry excessively. They're difficult to console. They have disrupted sleep. And I've seen parents come in with colicky babies that are truly colicky babies, and they look like ready to pull their hair out. And fortunately, it doesn't last that long. And it usually goes away on their own. There's lots of reasons. It's not usually from them being uncomfortable or in pain. Um, it can be from gas. It can be from a lot of other things. And I see a lot of parents searching for ways to deal with this. And there are not a lot of good ways to deal with this. You just really need to write it out or find what will console your child. Were there things that you use to console, console your child when they were crying just in general? You know, one of the things I used is, you know, I would, couldn't get my daughter consoled, get my son consoled. We went in the back of the car and went for a drive. And it worked every time. Five minutes in, sound asleep. Uh, and it was fantastic. Do you have yeah, one really big thing that I love the most because also parents talk about, well, if my baby's crying, I'm trying to console them. I'm spending so much time that I can't cook dinner. I can't do all these other things. I'm tired. Wonderful things, right? I loved using the – luckily, you know, I didn't really ha – I didn't have this problem. My kid didn't really cry that much. Um, she was just super relaxed. Um, but I've had other kids that have cried a lot. But one of the things that worked really well for me – if I needed to be productive, which we all do as parents, be super productive and parent and try to console this colicky child, putting them into a chest carrier. They're close to you. And if you know they're just not going to stop crying, you know at least that they are – you are consoling them in a way you're, you're hugging them basically the entire time. You're giving them the warmth from your chest. You know, they're smelling you. They feel like they're being held. And they feel like they're being a part of whatever you're doing in the day and they're not being left out. And so they're getting that attention. And you're getting things done, putting them right in that chest carrier. And you're doing all the things that you need to do, but you're also having them with you and not having to pick them up every five seconds or that. I mean, you will have the a little bit of the screaming in the ear, but it is definitely better than letting them sit there for three hours crying that out. Feeling like you're doing something wrong. I, I would agree 100%. And each parent's going to find their way with their child. And I wanted to go back, and as some of our listeners may have heard of the five S's, can you tell people a little bit about them? Oh, yes. Uh, number one is, I did mention it, swaddle. Babies, most babies love to be swaddled, whether it's they love their arms in or they love their arms out. A lot of them love to be swaddled. Yeah, learn, learn to do it well. That is a technique that if you learn to do it well, and there's lots of places. Oh, the you, hospital can show you how yeah, to make your baby a I, taco. I can swaddle so well because <laughs> if you didn't swaddle the babies, the nurses would kill us in the in the well baby nursery. And we had, we'd examine them and not wrap them properly, and we would get scalded for weeks. Um, so learn well. There's Velcro swaddles. There's, you know, if you're really great, then you can just do the regular um, – looks like a blanket, really long, oversized, thin blanket. Use one of those. Um, but they make it super easy. So I love the Velcro ones. If it's, you know, why work harder than you have to? So swaddling them makes them feel like they're in the womb. It couldn't give them more of that comfort feeling. Absolutely. And what what are some of the other things? Oh, yeah. So I got distracted. So swaddles, number one. Number you, two, love, you love swaddling I so know. much. Number two is um, their side or stomach position. And, you know, that's kind of holding them literally on their side or on their tummy. And 
that's really great for comforting them and helps them. Again, we talked about relieving the gas and other maybe other little belly issues. So that's one of the the second thing. Um, the third is the shush, which we've you we, we don't even have to learn this. It's just something that's kind of engraved into our brains as we're young. The shh sound, and we're always shushing a dads, baby. Dads might need to learn. We shush dogs. We shush other family members. We shush a lot, and um, kind of whispering gives them that. That's that. It's really the noise that's similar to them in the womb. You know, that's just that constant low hum, and can really relax them. The uh, the other one is swing. I love swings. Love baby swings. Again, I will say that it's not a nap time place. Make sure they're sleeping in a place that's for sleeping. Um, but swinging is definitely could be your hands. Doesn't have to be a physical swing, but kind of giving that motion of a swing. Yeah, I I always used to like I call it the Superman position where your kind of hand is football. I I, I call it Superman, and it's a different one. It may be football for you, but it's putting your hand in between their legs from behind where their their butt is, and putting your hand up underneath their chest. And they almost kind of look like Superman or Superwoman and kind of going back and forth. And whether it's football, Superman, that works really, really well. And They're I used to you... that position in utero. So and that's something that's, again, we're replicating the womb. Exactly. You you certainly want to be gentle when you're swinging and do a little jiggling. Um, but these motions really, really work well. And the last one, which really really works and part of the whole soothing process is the suck that dr chris mentioned the sucking um the reflex and also just them sucking in general just makes them feel at ease that's what they know that's what that's what calms them down whether it's a pacifier or feeding them or something along those lines that really gives them that sensation and that it really just them soothing themselves kind of in a way yeah, we've we've hit, I would say, the majority of the culprits of crying in infants. Um, there are obviously more, um, but I would really recommend if you have a crying infant or you're a new mom or new dad, thinking about it as this is the checklist to go through, and then these are the interventions that you can do. And you know, it's really hard for any parent to hear their child crying and not be able to console them and not be able to get it go away. Hopefully none of you will have to deal with colic. Unfortunately, I think some will. And, you know, we do parent coaching all the time. We do sleep coaching all the time. And there are other methods known as the Ferber method where you really leave them cry it out. Not something that we're going to get into tonight. Um, but I want to thank everyone for listening again tonight. Um, this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to our hearts and we really love talking about. Um, again, we do parent coaching. There are online classes and go to www.bloomworldwellness.com. And again, I want to thank everyone for listening. Yes, absolutely. So hope maybe you can do try some of those tricks out today and uh, they'll work for you. So have a great night. We'll talk soon. Next podcast. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining our mom and doc talk. Did any questions come up while you were listening? Share your questions with Dr. Christopher and Azure by visiting www.blueemeraldwellness.com. You can also connect with them on Instagram at wearekidshealthsecrets. Don't forget to rate the show on iTunes or Spotify so we can continue answering your most pressing kids' health and parenting questions. Thanks again for tuning in. And we'll catch you in the next episode of Mom and Doc Talk.
The content of this podcast, the opinions and information provided by the co-host and guests are for educational purposes only and should not replace the care provided by your child's physician. If you or your child is ill or having an emergency, please call 911 or seek care immediately.